The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That word I announce to you today. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Today is the day that is filled with interesting complications for us church folks. First of all, it's All Saints Day, the day we remember the saints we knew and loved. It's also that day we long for that coming day of reunion in God's kingdom where our songs of praise will resound across a restored world. Secondly, today is a day for administering the sacrament of holy baptism, a day when we acknowledge the work of God's Spirit among and within the lives of our newest and youngest disciples. Today we place three of our children before God and baptize them into Christian faith. Third, today is another Sunday spent in our fall preaching series, Thy Kingdom Come, another opportunity to hear the gospel readings and ask ourselves, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said kingdom of God? All Saints Day, baptisms, kingdom of God. That's the background for us here at First Pres today as we come to the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 23, and so we're going to want to know things like what on earth are we supposed to do with these warnings Jesus gives his disciples about the problems with religious leaders. What on earth does any of this have to do with the kingdom of God or with baptism or with All Saints Day? Connect the dots, preacher. Make it make sense. I admit This is a difficult challenge, but come on, First Press, we're up for difficult challenges. We can do hard things, a phrase used occasionally around our house to motivate lackadaisical boys who think unloading the dishwasher is too hard. We can do hard things. All Saints Day, Baptism's Kingdom of God, Jesus' denunciation of his own senior pastors and theologians. Here we go. Church, this is Dr. Aaron Lazar. The late Dr. Aaron Lazar, to be more accurate. Dr. Lazar died in 2015. Dr. Lazar served for a decade and a half as the director of the Acute Psychiatric Service at Massachusetts General Hospital and a professor of psychiatry, first at Harvard Med, then at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he later would retire as dean and interim chancellor. Dr. Lazar specialized his research and writing on a common human practice that you and I are both very familiar with, or for some of us, we ought to be, apologizing. What is an apology? How do we apologize in ways that are good and right and true? Why is apologizing an essential human practice that is absolutely necessary? Dr. Lazar wrote this, an apology is an admission of responsibility for a mistake or offense, followed by expressions of regret, remorse, and forbearance, or making amends. Then, Dr. Lazar says this. He says a proper apology has four elements. First, we acknowledge the offense. We take responsibility. We affirm that your behavior was not acceptable. We don't use vague or evasive language. We don't say, like, I'm sorry that you felt like I was menacing. Uh, We be direct and we take responsibility. Be upfront. Secondly, he says, explain what happened, but don't justify it. Okay, so don't try to end the apology here, but you can, in your apology, 
explain how you got to the place you're in that you need to apologize. Third, he says, express remorse. Express sincere remorse. If you regret what you did as you ought, if you feel ashamed for your complicity as you ought, say it. Say how you are upset by what you've done. Finally, he says, offer to make amends. If your offense was a physical offense, say, hypothetically, you kicked a soccer ball hard in your basement toward a glass casement window and the window shattered, you might offer some of your allowance to repair it. But if your offense was against someone's feelings, then making amends means acknowledging their pain and making promises to be more sensitive in the future. Okay, got it? That's how you apologize. Uh, and that's from the expert who specialized in it. Now that we've all learned how to apologize, thanks to an expert in apologies, I think we're ready to turn back to our gospel reading today. The gospel reading today comes from Matthew 23, and it's a rather interesting scene. You may recall that the previous chapter, Matthew 22, was filled with people trying to test Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick Jesus. Religious leaders, uh, the, the senior pastors and book-writing theologians of Jesus' day were trying to see if Jesus was, in fact, being blasphemous against God or whether he was being seditious against the Roman Empire. And in every encounter, Jesus is able to weave an answer in such a way that leaves his would-be adversaries tangled up by their own words. That's Matthew 22. Matthew 23, by contrast, is nearly 100% monologue. Nearly all of the words of this chapter are words uttered by Christ. For those whose Bibles print red letters whenever Jesus is speaking, Matthew 23 is nearly all read. In fact, with the exception of verse 1, every one of the 38 other verses of this chapter are words spoken by Jesus. There is no dialogue. This is monologue. And initially, Jesus' audience is his own disciples, those who have committed to follow him, and also a larger crowd of people who are interested in Jesus. But by the end of the chapter, he is directly calling out anybody who would consider themselves part of the religious establishment. And that means that by the end of this chapter, Jesus is addressing me and Paul and people in church leadership. And of those many words Jesus spoke today, the specific ones we're considering from, come from the first 12 verses, and they are by far the most tame and measured. I mean, it may sound harsh to hear Jesus say, do what the Pharisees and scribes say, but don't do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. And it is harsh. It may sound hard to hear Jesus say to those TikTok famous senior pastors and best-selling theologians that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And it is harsh. But believe me, it would get 
worse for the scribes and Pharisees. Listen to what Jesus says later that we don't even get to talk about today. Verse 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woo! Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verse 19, how blind you are. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're like whitewashed graves. You are like whitewashed graves which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? So yeah, church. Anyone else a little unclear on the precise reasons for Jesus ending up hanging on a cross? In our section of Matthew 23 today, Jesus is only getting ramped up, but by the end, he is... He ends up ranting in what would have totally been an internet-famous viral takedown of the religious leadership of his day. It is serious. It is sober. It is direct. It is frustrated. It is angry. It is disappointed all at once. And church, look, if we're going to talk about the kingdom of God today, if we're going to talk about what it looks like when God's kingdom arrives in our present reality, if we're going to talk about baptizing our children and welcoming them into this faith community, if we're going to talk about the faith of the saints of yore embodied that they gave themselves over to wholeheartedly, then we also have to take seriously what Jesus is saying here to people who were tasked with leading the religious life of his people. Because what Jesus is essentially saying is that the reality of the kingdom of God directly confronts the way in which religion obscures, overburdens, and oppresses people under their care. Today I want to focus on what Jesus says in verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That is to say, they have a legal right to shape and direct the religious life of God's people. They're in charge, Jesus says. So therefore, verse 3, do what they teach you, but do not do what they are practicing, for they are not in alignment. Those tasked with shepherding God's people, with guiding them toward the waters of renewal and hope and shalom, have, in Jesus' estimation, instead become harsh taskmasters, strict Torah enforcement officers who abandon any pretense of a quiet or gentle servant leadership and instead have looked for opportunities to exert privilege and power and control and influence. They are saying the right things, Jesus says, but they are doing the wrong things. But, but church, it is verse 4 that got me this week. It is verse 4 that has bothered me all week. Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. In what follows, Jesus goes on to name a few more things the religious leaders were guilty of, doing their religious acts of piety in public, requesting green room access and VIP seating at parties, 
having the best seats in worship services. They love the way people talk to them, insisting on formal greetings in public. Uh, No, sorry, it's uh, the Reverend Doctor, okay? And they love the way it sounds when people call them rabbi, teacher, professor. Jesus warns his disciples that none of this is part of the kingdom project he's inaugurating. None of this civic grandstanding and religious influencing should characterize citizens in God's kingdom. All that's good. And many worthy sermons could be preached on Jesus' command that the greatest among you will be your servant. But this week I am drawn right back to verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on the shoulders of others and are unwilling to move them. These words sat with me this week and I started to wonder about us, the church, here in the 21st century. I started to wonder if we have become guilty of the same thing Jesus accused his religious leaders of in his day. Have we become those who place heavy burdens on those who sit in the pews each week? So I reached out to a couple groups of friends, some here locally and some not locally, and I asked them, have you ever felt burdened by the church? And if so, how? Listen to a few of their stories. One said this, the church community I was raised in seemed to be more motivated by the fear of eternal damnation rather than the excitement of building the kingdom. Another said this, I once watched as a senior in high school was asked to stand up in front of the whole church where the pastor announced to the congregation that yes, this teenager was pregnant and no, God was not happy. In fact, God was ashamed. One friend told this story, my third grade Sunday school teacher told me that you could live a sinless life and cross the street and trip and cuss. And if you immediately got hit by a car before you asked for forgiveness, you would go to hell. Or this, My friend came out in high school, and when he did, the church asked him and his family to leave because they were willfully acting in violation of God's laws. They never went back to any church. A friend who became a Christian in high school wrote this, My introduction to the church 20 years ago was to a place where I watched church leaders and church group uh, use God to justify and enable division rather than reconciliation. Another friend told me this story. At the funeral, he wrote, the pastor looked at my friend's body dead by suicide and told us all that he was most likely in hell because the Bible said so. My friend said, I spent two decades reading the Bible and went to seminary trying to find that particular passage, and I never could. Another friend wrote, when I was 13, I told my parents I wanted to be a pastor. I specifically said, I think God is calling me to preach. They told my pastor this, and my pastor set up a special meeting with me where he explained to me I could not go to seminary and become a pastor because I was a girl. Girls can't be pastors, he said. Many long years later, long after my ordination to the ministry as a Lutheran pastor, Those words, he said, still sting and cause grief. Now, church, we may take solace when we realize these stories were not about this particular church community, but other places around the world. But let me be honest, whatever solace I take from that is weak. I was grieved 
to hear these stories of friends of mine. And as these replies came in this week, I, I sensed the burden placed upon my friends, sometimes at young ages, far too young, like reams of paper stacked upon them with the promise of some distant VIP room in heaven for those who get it all right. The good news of the gospel, the liberating news of God's radical love for us in Jesus Christ, the wonderful joyful announcement that in Jesus we have been forgiven before we knew anything of it. All of that was co-opted by a gospel of behavior modification and cultural narrow-mindedness. The gospel was no longer good news anymore. It was tough and hard and prickly and impossible to achieve. But more to the point, the gospel became weaponized and wielded against those who were perceived by the community to be sinful. The VIP room was only for the morally righteous, only for those who do it the way we do it, only for those whose Christian faith looks exactly like ours. And the consequence of these stories, church, the consequence is that generations have been lost in the church. The son who was shamed by his church for coming out is now an adult who wants nothing to do with church ever again. The 14-year-old who listened as a pastor told him his friend was in hell because he died by suicide is now an adult and is uninterested in anything the church has to say about anything ever again. And he's raising his kids to be suspicious of any religious person. Church, the generation of nuns that all the sociologists speak about now, folks who are spiritual but unwilling to be part of a church, we church leaders, we who sat in Moses' seat, we were complicit in the creation of that generation. We have weighed down generations with moral expectations and have heaped upon people's shoulders guilt and shame for the times they've messed up. We've turned the gospel into a life improvement plan instead of a radical invasion of grace and love. And the time has come for us to apologize. So if you'll permit me, I've consulted with Dr. Aaron Lazar's writing and I think I've gotten it down right. An open letter to the burdened Christian. Dear brother or sister in Christ, I may not know your particular story. I may not know the extent to which you ache when you think about the church or the gospel, but nevertheless, I want to apologize for the hurt and guilt inflicted upon you. Perhaps you were a child and you were told that God was always watching you and he saw all the bad things you did and you grew up believing God was nothing more than a police officer enforcing a strict code of ethics rigorously. Maybe you began to doubt your faith in high school and when you told this to your youth pastor you felt ostracized as you were told real Christians don't doubt. Maybe it was something to do with your sexuality or your vocational aspirations, or maybe it was the way the church expected so much from you and out of you, and you kept feeling like no matter what you did was never enough to please God. Maybe you fell into addiction or endured a difficult divorce or were the victim of harassment or assault, and your church leaders blamed it on you and told you to try harder to get better. Maybe you were told the gospel is about getting all the facts right about God and salvation in the world. And if people disagree or have other opinions, well, they are on their way not to heaven. I don't know the extent of the burdens placed upon you, but I regret them. And I apologize to you that you have experienced them. It was not right 
nor was it the proper administration of the sacred ministry we pastors are entrusted to. We sinned against you, whether in thought, word, or deed, and we owe you our heartfelt apology. I am certain that the intentions of those who hurt you were not to harm or hurt you, but as we know, intention matters far less than impact, and the harm or hurt came anyway, and for that we must make amends. It grieves me to hear your stories, to know that the good news of the gospel causes you to shudder with guilt and shame. It pains me to hear tales of public church meetings and shunning and separation and self-righteous posturing. I long for you to find a healing space in which you can again hear that the good news of God's love is just that, good news. I can offer no physical amends to you. I can make no financial restitution to cover the damages done to you or your children at the hands of church leaders, but I can tell you this. As a pastor of a church community in Flint, Michigan, I want you to know that your stories help me take my role more seriously, especially my role in helping shape this particular congregation. I want you to know that here at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, we are actively working to declutter the gospel from all of the cultural detritus placed upon it over the years. We are trying to make a space where the gospel is exactly what it was when Christ first announced it and modeled it, a joyful declaration that God is at work bringing shalom and healing to this world and that because of Jesus Christ, we have all been caught up in a wild and deep story of reconciliation and hope. I want you to know that at First Pres, we try our best to practice radical welcome and hospitality and we resist the urge to wade into the waters of cultural warfare and societal divides. Here we try to allow the headlines to feature what God is doing in our community and not what the world is doing to itself. I want you to know that many people have found their way into this community, still carrying burdens like you carry, and they have found a space to begin laying down some of those burdens and are in the process of rediscovering what it means to follow Jesus. It is a joy to baptize and welcome new folks into this community because here we are trying to practice a way of life that is generous and loving, even as we continue to be more and more like Christ in every way we can. We're not a perfect community. We still struggle a lot, often with one another. But we always return to our ultimate aim, the kingdom of God, the reality of God's sovereignty that is taking shape in this world of hurt and sin. And in that shadow, we are rediscovering how to love one another and how to welcome the strangers. I write to you as a church leader, but also as a friend, and I want you to know that your hurt and your guilt and your shame and your anger are real feelings, and it is okay to have those feelings, but I also want you to hear that there is another way to live and follow Jesus than the burdened way of your past. I pray that you will find a place of your own to call home where you can again Hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven. Alleluia. Amen. Yours in Christ, Joseph. Church, I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.